Well, good morning, everybody. There we go. Let's, um, let's thank God for that singing. Can we do that real quick? Let's just thank God. Yes. <clears throat> and let's, um, let's pray and just ask God to bless what we're about to do, studying his word. Father, thanks for the morning. God, that was awesome singing. And Lord, we just <clears throat> give you praise that you have gifted Brandon and his team. And Lord, it is just so good for our souls to sing the truth of the gospel, that you are Jesus, our living hope, that we take this moment to look away from ourselves, to look away from our sin, to look away from our circumstances, and to look to Jesus and express that in song is just such a gift to your church. And so we thank you, God. Pray that you would work, Lord, this morning. Um, thank you for the way you're already working. Lord, I pray for every Christian in here that is going to hear the word, that it would be a moment or a morning of transformation, of decisions that will be life-changing, life-altering. God, life is short. We don't want to waste our time on sin and silliness. God, we, we want to change. So God, would you just allow that to happen in the life of every Christian and Lord, we think of those who don't know Christ yet. We think of the hardness of their heart. We think of the walls that they have put up to stop Jesus from getting in. And Lord, would you just tear down those walls this morning? And would you reach the most hardened sinner who knows that they need something and help them to see that the something that they need has a name and his name's Jesus. And God, we pray that you just do some miracles, God. Do some amazing things. Open our eyes to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good to see all of you guys here. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be reading in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. So if you have a physical Bible, that's great. If it's on your phone, look it up there. 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to be reading verses 13 through 18 this morning. And the sermon title this morning is Meeting Jesus in the Air, and we are talking about a new sermon series on the end times, prophecy, and we'll be doing that all throughout the fall, and this is the kickoff Sunday for that, so we're so glad that you could join us. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to read verses 13 through 18, Okay, starting in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the second coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall, have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Praise God for the reading and hearing of his word. Amen? Awesome. So as we tackle this topic, 
our, again, our sermon series is called What's Next? The Return of Christ and the Life to Come. So if you have lived as a living, breathing human being in the last two years, you have probably asked this question, when is Jesus coming back? Right? Surely this is the moment. And you and me, like many other generations of Christians, have asked the question. And it's a natural question to ask. When is Jesus coming back anyway? You might have someone at your work or in your family who's not a Christian at all, but the one question they probably will ask you is, hey, what's going to happen at the end of the world? Can you tell me? And many of you are um, probably ill-equipped to answer the question. You're like, I don't know. I just believe in Jesus, you know? Like, and there's that type of answer that, you know, I don't really know all that stuff. My pastor has outlawed the, the book of Revelation. I'm not supposed to read it. I don't know. And, and some of you, um, you have a little bit better answer. You, you have studied this out. You know a little bit more. You can share what Christians believe. But normally, the American view of the return of Christ is something like this, right? When you start talking end times, this is the picture that a lot of people have of the crazy Christian who's just studying their end times charts out, bug-eyed and crazy, and I know exactly when Jesus is going to come back. Let me tell you. And, and if you say something wrong in the conversation with this kind of Christian, they will automatically correct you and say, no, that's, that's incorrect. That doesn't match up with my charts here. And it's just like, that's weirdoville, right? And a lot of people think that that's really how Christians think about end times. That's not how Orthodox Christians think about end times, okay? That picture is not the picture we want. The picture that we want of a real picture of the end times is reasonable, it's logical, it's supernatural, it does require faith to believe it, and it centers on Jesus and a center of Jesus that is explainable to other people. So, I want to give you guys, before we get into 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to give you some guiding truths to think about as we unpack prophecy and end times and Armageddon and apocalyptic stuff all fall. I want to give you a quick guide, okay? So here's, here's your guide. Guiding truth number one when we approach prophecy is this. Prophecy is clear, okay? Prophecy is clear. God is not in heaven trying to trick his sons and daughters into believing wrong things, okay? If you just read the Bible, you will see that it is very clear about what it means to be saved and what is next, what's coming next. There might be some idiosyncrasies in the clarity that you're like, oh, I have a question about that and I have a question about this date and this idea. But for the most part, the Bible speaks very clearly about prophecy, okay? And I just want you to put that in your mind. What God is going to do next is going to send Jesus to return to the earth. Can I get a witness? Amen? Okay. After that, there is judgment coming to this planet, and you understand that the Bible, you know, speaks fairly clearly about those things. Now, the prophecy is clear. Guiding truth number two is this. Prophecy is mysterious. Okay, and you're like, Pastor, you just said 
Prophecy is clear. Now you're telling me it's mysterious? What are you doing? You're talking about out of both sides of your mouth here. Here's what I mean. I don't mean that prophecy is not complicated at times. It is. There's a mystery to prophecy. Like if you read Daniel and you get past chapter 6, chapter 6, 1 through 6 of Daniel is all about the Sunday school stories. Amen? We like those ones. But if you go Daniel 7 through the end of Daniel, it is mind-bending to try to get your brain around all the concepts that Daniel is talking about because there's a lot of figurative language and apocalyptic language. You got to interpret it correctly. So I'm not saying that it's not a mystery because there, it is mysterious. Some of those things, the details are hard. But Matthew 24, if you read Matthew 24, that's kind of mysterious. Jesus telling us about the end of the age. You're like, what is he talking about? There's a lot there. We're going to study Matthew 24 later this fall. It's going to be awesome. But you understand the disciples. They had the same heart you did in Acts chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. They're sitting there talking to Jesus. They say, hey, is it now? Is it now that you're going to bring about the end of the age and the coming to the kingdom of Israel and you're going to do all this stuff? Is it right now? Do you remember what Jesus said in Acts 1, 7? He said, it's not for you to know. Sounds like a parent talking to a kid, doesn't it? It's not for you to know the times and the epics that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses for me. So even Jesus said, look, there's a mystery here, guys. You're going to have to go, obey me, walk with me, lay your life down for me, preach for me, but I'm not going to tell you the end. All right, so the prophecy is mysterious, and we want to be clear about that. Guiding to truth number three about prophecy is that prophecy gives room, okay? Prophecy gives room. If you're going to biblically look at the end times and prophecy and apocalyptic, you know, uh, literature, you're going to have to give a little bit of room, all right, for some interpretation, all right? Now, here's what I mean by that. All right, I got the prophecy chart, all right? This is, this is a really intimidating chart, is it not? Some of you have this chart at home. How dare you? Just kidding. My dad is a prophecy nerd. My dad loves prophecy. So I grew up in the home where dad's got the charts and he's got the verses and he's got the stuff. And he's just like, Josh, you're wrong. This is right. This is right. And I'm like, I grew up in the house where I was wrong and learning all the time. And dad's got everything figured out. It's very intimidating to grow up in a home where the charts are everywhere. And here's the deal about charts and prophecy and end times. If you're convinced that you are right, it's a 100% guarantee that you are wrong, actually. Because everybody has plans, right? Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord establishes their steps. And, and that is so true in prophecy. If you're going to be a biblical Christian about prophecy, you might argue about the tribulational period. You know, you might argue your position on the millennium and when Jesus is going to come back and, and what the nature of God's judgment is. But if you find yourself as a Christian in a small group or in a conversation, arguing ardently and passionately about the bold judgments and the seal judgments in Revelation, you're weird and you need to repent, okay? Because you need to give room. Give some room. Let other people breathe a little bit and, and process end times. Don't just suffocate them in a conversation to say, my way or the highway, pal, some people are like, that's not 
a Christianity I want to buy into. And I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm saying, that's not the type of Christianity I want to buy into either. Prophecy gives room. You got to have some room, some wiggle room to move your positions around a little bit because we all can be clear about the obvious things. But when you get into the smaller details, you got to give some room, okay? Finally, prophecy is hopeful, okay? Prophecy is hopeful for Christians, okay? Here's what I mean. End times, if you read end times, it is generally speaking very comforting and very hopeful about the future because you can read the book of Revelation and you can see the end and you can say, I know how it finishes and we win, amen? It's like being an Iowa Hawkeye fan, I know the end. We win, right? Is that a prophecy about next Saturday? Oh, maybe. I knew this was the only safe Sunday to wear this shirt. So that's why I'm wearing it. Because I, I, I no guarantee I get to wear this shirt next week, right? But look, prophecy is hopeful. Hopeful. You can read the book of Revelation. And Revelation is the only book in the Bible that guarantees in chapter 1, verse 3, a blessing for reading the book. If you just read the book of Revelation, you are promised by the Apostle John a blessing in your life. Okay, so there's no other uh, genre of letter or scripture that promises you personal blessing when you read it. So prophecy is a very hopeful thing. It's a very comforting thing. It's awesome to know. Now, if you are not a Christian, Prophecy is not hopeful, it is terrifying. Because if it's right, you are in a really tough spot. So you need to consider the claims of Christianity, right? So those are our guiding truths, our guiding principles. Now let's dig into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because that's what we're here for. And, and this text comes to us in a context, right? So when we are talking about the Thessalonian church, we are talking about an amazing church, a powerful church, a church that received the gospel with great enthusiasm. So this church was on fire, amazing, powerful. They loved Jesus, right? And, and they were right in the middle. Thessalonica was right in the middle of Greece. So Paul comes through Greece and he stops in Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. A lot of people get saved amazing, amazing influence in the city. And there was quite a ruckus in the city as well. And you can read about this in Acts 17. People are getting arrested. There's, there's all kinds of street protests and all kinds of things because the church was very, very powerful, but also um, causing quite a ruckus socio, uh, sociologically. Yeah, I guess that'd be the word, right? Socially. There's this more simple way to say it. So ultimately... This church was loved by Paul. Paul adored this church. There was nothing bad he could say about it. And one of the things about the Thessalonian church is that they were hungry for the return of Christ. They believed in Jesus and they believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Okay, so early Christians, if you were an early believer, you would believe wholeheartedly that Christ could come in your lifetime. And so it is today. Amen. So it is today, 2020. How do you know you're a genuine Christian? You believe authentically that Christ died for your sins, he rose again, and you are convinced that Jesus could come very much in your lifetime. So that's a mark of a genuine Christian. And in the midst of this, 
They were hopeful that Christ would return. Now, they had a problem, right? Because the problem was that they were seeing their brothers and sisters die, right? They're all hoping for the resurrection. They're all hoping for Christ's return. But a brother so-and-so died, they had to bury brother so-and-so. Sister so-and-so died, they had to bury sister so-and-so. And they're wondering, what's going to happen to their bodies? Like literally, what is going to happen? Because if Christ returned, I mean, are they just going to be disembodied spirits and we're going to have our bodies and it's really weird when a body tries to talk to a disembodied person. Like those, have you ever had a conversation like that? Say no, please say no. But you know, it, like that just doesn't work well. So they're confused. So that's why Paul had to address it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's got to address what's happening. There are people who are asleep in the grave, Christians. What's happening to them? What do we know about the return of Jesus that will help us? And so the second coming is a theme in 1 Thessalonians. In every chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, the second coming is directly referred to in the letter by Paul. Okay, so you can look at it here in in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, what is our hope and what is our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord? And look at that phrase, at his coming. Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. And that's just one reference of many, many references to the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians. And so this is a big event for Christians. And so what Paul is going to say in this text is that the second coming of Jesus it serves as a comforting and powerful reality for all believers. Okay? That's what, that's what he's saying. The second coming of Christ is going to serve as a comforting and powerful reality in your life. Which leads us to the question, how can the second coming of Jesus comfort my heart? You might be asking that. Like, what does is, what is Christ coming into the skies have to do with me being comforted because I need some comfort in my life? And I know many of you living in this society that we live in, you need some comfort. You need some powerful comfort in your life. You need to know, like, what is going on. On Wednesday, we buried my father-in-law. Thank you as a church for supporting us the way you have. It's been amazing. Text messages, prayers, I know they're being sent up, cards that were sent to us. It was an incredible week. Very long, very hard, very emotional, but very good. So we buried my father-in-law on Friday, and then on, or on, on Wednesday, and then on Friday, we were told that the leader of the church that we rent our church offices from, Indianola Heights, just up the street, that the leader of their church went in for a very simple operation, died suddenly and unexpectedly. And then yesterday, I was attending a funeral in the morning and officiating a wedding in the afternoon. I'm telling you, that, that day was a little trippy, right? But in the morning, the, the former president of the Bible college that I went and got educated at, he passed away on August 31st, and his funeral was yesterday morning. And I'm just saying, when the casket lowers into the ground, you got to have hope that is real and solid and true. Amen? And I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, is the foundation that helps us when we are hurting, when we're confused, when we're overwhelmed by seeing people around us die. 
we got to have a firm footing in that moment. And as a pastor over the years, I've seen many individuals who have not known where their loved one is who's in the casket. And I've watched those individuals spin into all kinds of depression and anxiety and worry and fear and hopelessness because they just don't know and they want to know. I've been to some pagan funerals that I've officiated that have blown my mind. Where I have seen individuals grab onto caskets weeping and wailing because they don't know if that person is going to heaven or hell or they don't know any of that. And, I, and I've seen grown men come up to caskets and just weep like little babies. Tough, manly men. Because they don't know. They don't have assurance. They don't have confidence of where that loved one is. And so what I'm saying is Paul is giving us powerful comforts this morning. He's telling us as Christians, you don't need to be swallowed up with hopelessness, God through Jesus and his return to this earth will give you powerful comfort this morning. So we're going to see two powerful comforts that God gives us and Paul gives us. And the first powerful comfort that he gives us is that I can grieve with hope. I can grieve with hope. Verses 13 through 15. Look at it with me. Verse 13. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep. You may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul starts in verse 13 by saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. All right, that's nice of him, right? The word uninformed means ignorant. I don't want you to walk around like an ignoramus. I don't want you to understand, not understand what's going on. Knowledge is what, class? Power, right? That's what we've heard from, from our schools and our society. Knowledge is power. And I think Paul, theologically, would agree. He's like, look, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know what's going on in the unseen realm. I want you to know what's going on with the return of Jesus so that you are not wondering about those who have fallen asleep. And you can see he refers to the dead person as being asleep in verse 13. And I just want to clarify that word if I could. The word asleep there does not refer to the heretical teaching of soul sleep. Okay? It does not refer to you dying and your soul just sleeps in the grave. That is heresy. That is Jehovah's Witness teaching. That is cultic teaching. I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness one day, and they were trying to win me to Jesus, and I was trying to win them to Jesus, and it was really weird, right? Because we were both trying to win each other to Jesus. And they were saying, oh, but when you die, uh, your soul goes to sleep. And I said, no, 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 that, that doesn't make any sense. And they're like, oh, yes, it does. Jehovah says. And I said, no, listen, the Jehovah you know and the Jehovah I know ain't the same Jehovah, okay? And I said, can I just give you an example? And they said, sure. And these were two old ladies. They're very sweet and they're very kind. But I said, can we just consider Adolf Hitler for a moment? And they're like, yeah, okay. And I said, let's say Adolf is not one of the 144,000 that go into your heaven you're telling me that the man who murdered six million Jews and oversaw the murder and the killing of 60 million people is going to commit suicide in Berlin and he just gets to sleep forever 
and ever and ever in the grave? And those two old ladies, they looked at me and they said, well, that's a great question. I said, amen, it is. <laughs> you know, because I said, because if he sleeps forever and ever, God is not just anymore. God is a just God who judges sin. And I said, if you just get to sleep forever, live however you want now, live for, and sleep forever, there's no justice in that. And they said to me, well, we have an answer for that. And I said, good, what is it? And they said, well, that's for Jehovah to decide. And I said, isn't that convenient? And we disagreed. They had a good day and I had a good day, whatever. But when Paul talks about being asleep, he's not talking about soul sleep. And when the Bible talks about being asleep, they're not talking about soul sleep. They're talking about the physical body. When the body dies, the soul goes to God and the body is now a shell and it literally is sleeping in the coffin or in the grave. And that was our experience even this week. The visitation was Tuesday night for my father-in-law. So my, my Marie and I got there a little bit late. She had to run in a cross-country meet. We got there and Marie and I walked to the casket. I wanted to be with her. We walked to the casket. It was emotional. It was sad. But as we looked at Bill's body, I put my arm around my daughter and I said, Honey, Grandpa is not here. His soul is with Jesus. Right? What you see in front of you, sweetheart, is his shell. Right? He's asleep. The body is asleep. Not to be woken up again until Jesus returns to the earth. And that was a very comforting reality, even in our pain of grieving. It was a beautiful thing. We could grieve with hope. And there's two ways to grieve, you know. <clears throat> and, you know, Paul says two ways to grieve. You can either grieve with hope or without hope. There is no middle ground. As you grieve as a Christian, you grieve with hope, believing that the future is good because Jesus is over the future and there are good things coming because God is going to keep his promises in the future so therefore, we grieve and we're sorrowful, but every genuine Christian grieves with hope. Or you don't know God and you don't know Jesus and you grieve without hope because you're freaking out, you're sad, you're angry, there is, there's, there's panic, there's fear, there's desperation because you don't know what the future holds. It's all dark, it's tunnel vision. I don't know what the future is going to hold because you got no hope. And Paul says, I want you to be able to grieve with hope. And in the midst of that, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, because Jesus died and rose again, God, verse 14, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, so Paul is saying, because Jesus rose again, we will rise again. Amen? That's a good promise. Because Jesus was raised, to the raised from the dead three days after he died by the Father and by his own power, because that, Jesus could take care of that, he can take care of me. He's got my body. He's got me. I'm okay. If I die today, I'm okay because Jesus resurrected. I will resurrect from the dead. If Jesus can do it for himself and the God the Father can raise him from the dead, he can take care of millions upon millions upon millions and hopefully billions of Christians who die in him. So that helps us grieve with hope. That's a powerful comfort to us. When we experience death or death in our family or death among our friends, we can grieve with hope. Praise God. 
Second powerful comfort is this. Jesus is coming to get me. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, which means Jesus is going to come down from heaven once again. This is good news. The first arrival of Jesus, do you remember how Jesus arrived first time? Very cute. Little baby, born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. We all love that. We love the snow falling in Iowa where we celebrate Christmas time and baby Jesus, right? Baby Jesus. So meek and humble and mild. And you know, he's just a little baby. Herod wants to kill him. He goes down to Egypt, comes back up again. We just love our baby Jesus, don't we? We love Christmas. Note the second coming of Christ in verse 16. Jesus' second coming will be nothing like the first one. When Christ comes again, he will come with loud noises. And he will come with power. And he will come with an appearance that is not a baby. He will come as a fully adult-looking deity God-man. Jesus will freak you out when you see him the second time. Can I get an amen? Now, he's coming with the cry of command, verse 16. What is the cry of command? That is a military term in the Greek. All right, so that is literally attention, right? We're walking around as Christians. We're hoping Jesus comes back. All of a sudden, Jesus comes back. We hear this noise, and we are all military, right? We are all soldiers for Jesus, we are all service people for Jesus. We are all warriors for Jesus because up we go and we're going to see our general face to face. That's the word, cry of command. So all of you, can I get a military amen? We're going to see that. We're also going to hear the voice of an archangel. I'm not quite sure what that sounds like, but it is freaky and probably very powerful. And I'm not sure which archangel it is, but it's going to be one of them because God says so. And then there's going to be a sound of the trumpet of God. So I want you to see, again, the sermon graphic that Jake made. Jake Smith. This is Eric Newton's mosaic from 1927. And you can look at Jesus and he has white hair. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got angels coming along. There's fire everywhere. And he's coming down to judge the earth. And artists have been trying to paint or create art that would, would fit the, the glory of Jesus' coming. And for 2,000 years, we've been painting this stuff and drawing this stuff. And we can't find an adequate drawing that will encompass what we're going to see, feel, and hear. And that's okay. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. This is before he went to the cross. He's talking about his second coming. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, now focus in on these two verses, 28 and 29. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That's powerful. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is no in-between with Jesus. There's no second chance. Hey, there's a doctrine that's floating around our society all over your social media, all over your phones, all over the headlines that God is so loving, he'll give you a second chance. If you don't believe in him in this life, you'll get a second opportunity. That is false. That is heresy. You get one chance and it's this life right here and right now. And praise God, we had a young woman at 830 service who came to Christ. For the first time in her life, she gave her life to Jesus. Some of you need to give your life to Christ. You don't get a second chance. Because Jesus will judge. The resurrection will happen and you don't get a conversation with the Lord about, hey, I know I didn't in the life that you gave me, but can I now? Consider Revelation 22, 7, where Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the man who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus himself says, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. And you might be saying in your sarcastic unbelief, yeah, you've been saying that for 2,000 years. Where are you? Don't forget to be humble. God exists outside of time. The apostle Peter said one day is 1,000 years and 1,000 years is one day with the Lord Jesus exists outside of time. He bends time. He's over time. You think he's delaying? No, no, no. He's not delaying. He's giving you time to repent. Jesus is coming back soon and the dead in Christ will raise first. That's what Paul said. So therefore, those who are in the graves will come up first. So if you're living and you are alive at the time of Jesus' return, the other people get a head start on you. Can I get a witness? They get a head start. All right, my. You know, I've heard it said and joked, they get a six-foot head start. Ha, 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 ha. But listen, it's like 1A, 1B, all right? The dead in Christ, those people that we're concerned about, brothers and aunts and uncles and people that have gone before us, those people, we don't need to be worried about them. They actually get to go see Jesus first. And we who are alive, stop worrying about it because Christ is going to pull them up out of the grave First, before you, and then we, as in a twinkling of an eye, almost instantaneously after, we will be caught up to be with Jesus. Now, the word caught up is where we get our word rapture. Some of you believe, oh, when's the rapture happening? When is the rapture of the church going to happen? When's this all going to go down? Right? Here, here's the reality. The word rapture is not the best English word to translate the Greek here. It's just not. Because the word rapture is like, Oh, I'm in rapture. There's love there, you know? Like, were you going up to heaven? And me and Jesus are just going to be buddy-buddy. We're going to be so tight. It's going to be so loving, right? Because the rapture is happening. I'm, I'm raptured. Okay, not the right word. Here's the right word. The right word is this, snatched. All right, that's the word here. The word is snatched. Literally, like we will be snatched from where we are and rocketed up into the sky. This will be a very violent experience for us. Because the word is violent. It's aggressive. The word snatched is, is also used here in Matthew eleven twelve. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. 
The phrase there, by force, is the word snatched. Right? There's violence on the earth. That's the word snatched. Okay, here's another look at it. Uh, John 10, 28, 29. Jesus said, I give to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will, see it? Snatch them out of my hand. This is in a really good way. Snatch. Nobody can snatch you out of Jesus' hand if you're saved. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So when Jesus returns, it's going to be this incredible experience of being snatched up and rocketed up into the sky to meet Jesus in the air. You guys know who Jeff Bezos is? Okay. Maybe you've heard of him. He, he has a few dozen dollars to his name. But this is his Blue Origin rocket that launched with him inside of it just last month. There was four of them, or I think there was four or five of them in the cockpit, right? And they launch up into the air, and it's an 11-minute ride. You think the space shot at Adventureland is cool? No way, right? This rocketed at, at a clip of 17,000 miles per hour. The G-forces are just unbelievable. If that were me in that cockpit, I would be saying all kinds of things to God, right? Some of them not so nice and probably a few sinful words as well where it's just like, ah, here we go, right? Listen to the stats on this flight, 11 minutes long. At the average cost of $2.5 million per minute, the the total cost of this little project and this ride, $5.5 billion. To get up into the sky and fall back down. Now I want you to think about Jesus and the second coming. Jesus Christ will be snatching you if you know Christ is your Savior. And you will be rocketing into the sky at a speed much faster than 17,000 miles an hour. With G-forces that you're probably going to have to talk to Jesus about when you talk to him. And Jesus will do it not for $5.5 billion. He will do it for free. If you know him as Savior. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's how Paul ends this passage. So we will always be with the Lord. When Christ splits that sky open and we don't have to worry about our mortgages anymore and we don't have to worry about all of our stuff anymore and our physical bodies are glorified where we're all moving beautifully and we see him face to face, we will never not have to see him again. Like we will be with him forever. Can you imagine never being out of the presence of Jesus Christ? It's hard to wrap our minds around. I told you prophecy is mysterious, right? To think through that day. Right now, we're living the 1 Corinthians 13 life. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, that for we know in part, then we shall fully know as we have been fully known. Um, I can't imagine it. We're going to flow into communion with this thought. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to see Jesus. It's going to be the most amazing thing in the history of the world to see our Savior face to face. And the old hymn 
when we all get to heaven. I don't know if some of you grew up singing that. I, I grew up singing that. It says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And what a day. And as we go to communion this morning, I want to show you this picture. This is on my deck this morning at 6.15 a.m. And I looked out and I looked at those clouds. I'm like, I got to take a picture and show church. Because I think this is Jesus' stamp of approval on my sermon this morning. Guys, I sat on my deck and I looked out and I said, Jesus, maybe today, maybe today, you'll take us from this sin-cursed place and we'll be with you forever and ever and ever. So as we go to communion, there's two different realities here that I want you to think about. We remember and we look forward. So for every Christian who knows Jesus, Yes, we remember at communion the death of Christ on the cross, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. But this morning, I also want you as a Christian to think about the forward look of Jesus coming back. Because this is the next great promise for us. And as you remember what Christ has done with communion elements, look forward with hope and joy. And if you don't know Jesus, you're here and you don't know Jesus, the return of Christ is a terrifying thought. Because there is no second chances. And I don't want you to leave this church without just repenting of your sin and coming to Christ and believing by faith in who he is. So, as we listen to some music, um, if you're a Christian, we invite you to participate in communion. We'll have some time to listen to music, meditate, confess sin, get right, make decisions, and when you're ready as a Christian, you can go back to the elements on those tables in the back, grab your elements, come back to the chair, and wait for us as a congregation. We'll participate together in communion. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, the best thing you can do is not take communion. Don't heap judgment on yourself. Don't be religious without a relationship. Just stay in your chair, talk to Jesus, get saved. I always say communion Sundays are great Sundays to get saved and become a Christian. So if you're not a believer yet, this is your invitation to take these next few minutes and believe in Christ. All right, let me pray and then we'll go into our communion time. Father, thank you for your amazing love and mercy. Jesus, you are coming again and you're coming soon, sooner than we think. So God, may you be with every Christian. Help us to look back at the cross and help us also to look forward to your triumphant return. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's not a Christian this morning, would you please save them? Cause them to repent. Don't let them die or risk dying without forgiveness, without eternal life. Give them the ability to repent this morning and, and receive you, Jesus. Lord, bless our communion time. In Jesus' name, amen.